Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's been at least a decade since a sexual assault epidemic was uncovered within the United States military. A documentary for PBS in 2012 called it The Invisible War. Today, one in four service women say they've been sexually assaulted. More than half say they've been sexually harassed. For years, advocates have called for a reform of the military justice system so independent prosecutors and not military commanders determine whether the accused should be prosecuted. Coming up, we talk about the reforms included in the new Defense Authorization Act and whether advocates think it's enough to change a culture inside a military that more often penalized survivors of assault than the accused. Now, some of what we'll talk about may not be suitable for all listeners. We hope you check back with us when it's a better time for you. Uh, Joining us first on the phone is Peggy McCarthy. She's a reporter for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, also known as CHIT. She's been covering the topic of sexual assault in the military for several years. The Pentagon calls sexual assault and harassment military sexual trauma, also known as MST. Peggy, welcome to our show. Excuse me? Peggy, welcome to our show. Can you hear us? Oh, thank you so much. It's <laughs> oh, you can, you can join us as well, our listeners, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Peggy, I mentioned the new Defense Authorization Act signed by the president. Uh, it's put forth annually. But tell us in this big package, uh, this big bill, lots of different uh, laws uh, in place, when we talk about the military justice system, how will it handle military sexual assaults? Well, for the first time, independent military attorneys will decide whether to prosecute sexual assault cases in the military. This is something that has been long sought by survivors of military sexual assault and advocates for them, and it replaces the, it will replace the a long tradition of commanders within the chain of command of the person who has been assaulted or raped and often the uh, perpetrator of making the decision whether to prosecute. So sometimes this could have meant that the commander is the perpetrator or the commander's commander is to be the perpetrator which has resulted in many people simply not reporting uh, their experiences of being raped or sexually assaulted. So that means long-time repercussions for them, physically, mentally, um, PTSD, anxiety, sleeplessness, um, drug abuse, eating disorders, 
um, because they have lived with it and have fought with it, and people have gotten away with crimes. And um, so the whole culture has made for an uncomfortable workplace. And you did mention military sexual trauma, and I just have to say that that includes harassment, and this this new law does criminalize sexual harassment, which is using offensive words and materials or uh, actions of a sexual nature and promising maybe advancement or punishment for sexual favors for giving or not giving. But the new law criminalizes harassment, but it doesn't not include that in the crimes that will be uh, handled by these independent military attorneys will decide whether to prosecute. So that is something that uh, supporters and leaders of this movement in Congress are going to try to change because of the interrelatedness of harassment and assault. Um, the, the measure also does not go as far enough as people had proposed in that the commanders will still have a role in the prosecution system. And they will determine, for example, who will be on um, court-martials. And so the question is, how independent will these independent attorneys be in the end, and how much control will the commanders retain? Uh, there will be a separate offices set up in each branch of the military. I believe the Army has already set theirs up prior to the passage of the bill. And um, they that is where cases of sexual assault will be reported, as well as 10 other crimes, including murder and uh, kidnapping and um but not sexual harassment. So um, also it, um, it will require that retaliation will be tracked and it will um, require that survivors are informed what happened in the case, what the disposition is, because this will still be in a military court. It will not be in a civilian court. Thank you for clarifying that uh, for us. Uh, Peggy McCarthy, here on Where We Live, a reporter with the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, or CHIT. Her most recent story focused on reforms that she laid out uh, to the military justice system and how it handles sexual assault cases. Uh, she's covered this issue for years, and she checked back in with the survivor she first profiled in 2013, a woman veteran who was assaulted as a young Marine. Joining us now on Zoom is Maureen Gard Friedley who lives in Texas, but she used to be a Connecticut resident while attending Quinnipiac University. Maureen, welcome to our show. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, thank you for agreeing to come on the show and tell us a little bit about your story. Now, I understand that when you were in the Marine Corps, uh, you were sexually assaulted by a platoon leader in 2006. Uh, first off, I'm sorry to hear that happened to you. What can you tell us about what happened after that assault? Oh my gosh, it is a long story of just being let down by my chain of command. Um, but the short of it is that they backed him up because he was in the chain of command. He was someone that had power over me. 
uh, within the platoon. And so they took his word over my own. So you decided to press charges against this platoon leader. And as you mentioned, uh, there weren't a lot of repercussions for him. Oh, there was basically none. Um, I attempted to press charges, like you said, and went through the whole process, did the interview with the NCIS, thought that I was going to move forward with it and eventually go to a court martial with it. And um, ended up going to my fleet unit out in San Diego. Hadn't heard about it for months. Checked back in with the school I was attending in Virginia where it happened. And they told me they had lost my paperwork. And so they were allowing him to go back into the fleet. A day later, I got another phone call from the unit saying that three other women had come forward claiming sexual assault from him and that he was being administratively separated from the Marine Corps. So he wasn't getting a dishonorable discharge. They were just kind of scooting him out of service. How did that impact you when you learned that? Oh, I immediately had a panic attack. I was I was in the middle of my workday in San Diego and had to be taken to the mental health unit um, on base because I just, I, my body could not physically process the information that I was getting. And where did you go for support during this time? Uh, I basically just had to rough it out myself. I, you know, my, my unit in San Diego was understanding to a point, but in the Marine Corps, it's, you know, you kind of have to get over it and support the mission and do your job. And so that's kind of what I had to do. How did this impact your trajectory in the Marine Corps? When did you decide uh, to separate? Um, I got out after four years. And if, if I'd gotten the support and the help that I really needed at that time, or ideally, if the, my case would have been prosecuted, like I was hoping it was, I probably would have had a full career in the military. As I mentioned, uh, you uh, ended up in Connecticut. You were attending Quinnipiac University, and you were also being very open about what happened to you in the military. Why did you decide uh, to tell your story? Um, I kind of looked at it as, you know, when when you join the military, and especially for me when I joined the Marine Corps, it's supposed to be this very elite force, and you're, you're in it to serve your country. And for me, becoming an advocate for this was not only serving my country and bringing light to sexual assault across the board, it was looking out for my brothers and sisters the way that I was taught that I was supposed to. In some ways, was this also therapy for you uh, as you worked through what happened that you were you know, also trying to help others? Uh, it, it was in a way, it was definitely very difficult because of course, during that whole time, um, I kind of had that whole hard-headed idea, you know, that most veterans have it with, I can do it myself. I don't need help. Um, now I do seek uh, PTS care um, from a local organization out here in Texas, uh, but it, it did help a little bit with that. I was able to find a few more people that um, had very similar stories to my own, and we were able to kind of form a little community. Uh, you mentioned that you became an activist uh, for other survivors of, of sexual assault. Uh, we heard from Peggy McCarthy laying out the changes uh, these in the, the federal law uh, to now um, 
reform uh, parts of the military justice system related uh, to sexual assault. So what's your reaction to the law and the changes set forth? Um, when Peggy told me about it, I, I literally just laughed to myself because uh, for me, you know, to for the government to say, here, we're going to give you what you want, but we're still going to keep the chain of command involved is the exact opposite of what we've been asking for all these years to say that a third party is going to look at the cases and basically advise the chain of command on what they should do, but still allow the chain of command to have the final decision is completely laughable. Yeah, that's a a hard thing to, um, to, to, to understand uh, when you've gone through it, uh, Maureen. And so uh, in some ways, these reforms may be seen as a first step. And so, um, you know, how do you want to see this evolve? Um, because it's been a, t- it take a long time to get to this place. Uh, but as you mentioned, um, having commanders still involved in this uh, may not be uh, the best for those uh, who are still fearful to come forward and tell their story and to see what happens to the accused. Yeah, I mean, my assault happened in 2006, and we are just getting to this point. So I can appreciate kind of uh, getting a foot in the door and maybe getting a few more uh, eyes and ears on this. Um, but I'm, I'm still going to hope and pray and push for eventually getting to a point where we're going to have all of that control completely taken out of the chain of command, um, especially when you consider that the majority of these assaults happen and involve the chain of command in them in some way, like how I had a platoon leader assault me. And then he is then directly involved with his own case. Um, and he has his buddies directly involved with his own case. So if we can eventually get to a point where people can understand the flaw in this and that if it wouldn't work in the civilian world, it definitely is not going to work in the military world because it's so much smaller Then that hopefully we can get to that point. Maureen, uh, I mentioned that you're now living in Texas and you're doing an interesting uh, line, a w- line of work and, and advocacy uh, working at an equine therapy ranch. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it's helping you too? Yeah, I've always been a horse person um, for all, all my life. Uh, and so I find a certain amount of calm and um, escape being around horses. And so when I found Sunny Creek Ranch here in Texas, um, it, it was a, an escape from the things in my own head that I could go to on a weekly basis. Um, you know, I've had a lot of issues with organizations that say they work with PTSD veterans not accepting me because I did not deploy and I didn't get my PTSD from a combat situation. And so they kind of say, well, you're not in the, you're not really a PTSD veteran. And they kind of push me aside. Um, Sunny Creek Ranch has completely accepted all veterans, regardless of if you've deployed, if you're female, if you have a family, whatever the case may be. Um, And they've been a huge help. And I do a lot of advocacy work with them to um, allow other veterans to find equine therapy programs in their own local communities because Sunny Creek Ranch only serves Texas. And we're trying to bring more awareness as this being an option rather than always being told just take pills. And, uh, and it's been a really great experience with them. I'm now on their board as the female voice um, for veterans. And we've been doing a lot of MST work 
with that group as well, um, especially after the Vanessa Guillen uh, incident happened down here. Um, we've been reaching out to more females and letting them know that there is a program specifically for them and that they can seek help through us. You mentioned Vanessa Guillen. This was a young uh, U.S. Army soldier uh, who uh, was murdered. Um, her family says uh, that she had told them she was sexually harassed. And uh, when um, the military uh, law enforcement uh, went after this uh, person uh, that was accused, uh, that person ended up dying by suicide. And so uh, a lot of attention on this particular case in Texas and how to reform the military justice system when uh, service uh, men and women come forward to talk about uh, what's happened to them, whether it's sexual assault and harassment. Uh, I want to thank you, Maureen, uh, for sharing your story with us uh, here on Where We Live. Again, Maureen Gard-Friedley is a Marine Corps veteran. She's a survivor of sexual assault, and she now lives in Texas, was a former Connecticut resident who attended Quinnipiac University. You're also a beautiful photographer. It was great to see some of your work online. Maureen, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Also want to thank Peggy McCarthy for joining us, a reporter for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, who's been covering the topic of sexual assault in the military. Coming up, we'll hear more about this particular law and uh, the um, parts of the law that relate to reforming the military justice system. It is complicated. But first, we're going to hear from the Connecticut Veterans Legal Center about how its team helps veterans, often years after they've been assaulted while in the service. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about changes and how the U.S. military prosecutes sexual assault cases. In the National Defense Authorization Act, the decision to prosecute sexual assault and 11 other serious crimes will now be made 
outside service members chain of command, and they will be offered protections against retaliation. Coming up, we'll hear more about these reforms from a former chief prosecutor for the U.S. Air Force. Now, sexual assault and harassment has been a long, have been a long-standing issue in the military. In the latest Department of Defense survey, more than 20,000 people said they've been sexually assaulted while in the service. And as we heard from CHIT reporter Peggy McCarthy, the culture in the military, including the chain of command, often discouraged service members from from reporting in the first place. In many cases, nothing happened to the accused. And now there have been efforts to reform the military justice system, heightened efforts in the last year, as we heard uh, from Maureen Guard Friedley about the death of a Fort Hood, Texas soldier, Vanessa Guillen, that helped pass the bipartisan federal legislation. Now, when someone has been sexually assaulted or harassed in the military, the trauma from those events can impact them for years, including their ability to access benefits they're entitled to as veterans. For more on that, joining us now on Zoom is Chelsea Donaldson. She's an attorney with the Connecticut Veterans Legal Center. Chelsea, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning. As I mentioned earlier, the military calls sexual assault and harassment in the service military sexual trauma, or MST. And so explain to us, um, for someone who's experienced assault or harassment, how this can end up with them having an other-than-honorable discharge and the long-term consequences of that, Chelsea. Absolutely. So... MST really encompasses a lot of different types of trauma and difficulty that someone can experience in the military. It encompasses sexual assault, sexual harassment, uh, and sometimes individuals, a lot of times actually, experience both of those things when they volunteer to serve our country. Um, As Maureen said earlier, there is a woeful lack of support and encouragement to seek said support in the service for survivors of sexual violence in the military. So what I see a lot with folks who have experienced MST, it's kind of like a ticking time bomb. They experience this horrific event in the service and they're unable to seek help and treatment for it because the safe the space that they are in is not safe enough to do so. And so their trauma can manifest in other ways, uh, like misconduct. These are people that are often trapped in an environment with the same individual that violated them. And so instead of being able to seek the life-saving support that these people need, Uh, quite a few folks, including many of my clients, self-medicate in order to get through the day. A lot of my clients have gone AWOL in attempts to go home and try to find ways to escape this situation as quickly as possible for their own safety. And unfortunately, these acts of misconduct, which are really just manifestations of the trauma that they have experienced, can result in an other than honorable discharge, which has a catastrophic effect on your ability to seek VA benefits and healthcare with that type of discharge. Um, Until the passage of the Honor Our Commitment Act, which allows veterans who do have these types of bad paper discharges to seek free mental health treatment 
have VA, if they have experienced military sexual trauma or combat, they could not access the same mental health treatment that would help them from the scars of service that they have sustained. So that means no VA healthcare. That means no service-connected compensation. That means no access to the VA home loan. It is absolutely catastrophic what an other than honorable discharge can do, particularly if you have experienced trauma and you desperately need the help that the VA offers. There was a 2016 investigation by the Department of Defense's Office of the Inspector General that found uh, between 2009 and 2015, more than 22% of service members who left the military after reporting a sexual assault received a less than fully honorable discharge. So Chelsea, when you're working with veterans at the Connecticut Veterans Legal Center, how many of them have had this happen to them? It's hard to give an exact number. Uh, I can tell you that a large chunk of my practice at CVLC is in recharacterization of discharge hearings and practice at VA. So CVLC, we take everyone, uh, regardless of your discharge status, you are a veteran to us. And we often see people calling us that they need mental health treatment and they have gone to VA and VA has told them that they are not a veteran and they are not eligible. So at CVLC, at least, we do get quite a few veterans who call us with OTHs. And of that number, um, I would say over 95% of my personal recharacterization cases are MST cases. Mm -hmm. That has no bearing on the statewide numbers, (laughs) but the overwhelming majority of my character of discharge cases are MST survivors. So when you're helping them, you're working with the VA to repeal these types of other than honorable discharges so that they can be connected to the benefits, Chelsea. Yes. So VA has this mechanism uh, that's kind of like a second bite at the apple called the recharacterization of discharge process. It is, it does not change your DD-214. So what it does is it allows the veteran the opportunity to present evidence on their behalf. They have a right to a hearing and they can speak to a hearing officer about the circumstances of their discharge and why VA should see their service as honorable for VA purposes. Um, these, this process can be very onerous. It is not a second. Uh, it is not an easy second bite at the apple by any means. But it does give the veteran the opportunity to tell their story, and for my clients who are MST survivors in particular, this is the closest that they will ever get to having a hearing about what happened to them and having somebody in a position of authority listen to their story and believe them because they certainly weren't afforded that opportunity in the military when this all happened to them in the first place. Um, But once that hearing happens and all of the evidence is reviewed by VA, If it is granted, it does not change their DD-214, but VA looks at their service as honorable. 
So it allows these individuals to access VA healthcare, to receive service-connected compensation, to have access to an overwhelming amount of VA programs that they otherwise would not be entitled to. And it is absolutely life-changing what going through the recharacterization process at VA can do for these veterans who have these bad paper discharges. You're hearing Chelsea Donaldson here on Where We Live, an attorney with the Connecticut Veterans Legal Center. Again, as we talk about uh, military sexual trauma, what the military calls military sexual trauma, civilian uh, world, it's uh, sexual assault, harassment, rape, and how this can manifest uh, in veterans years later, what happened to them. You know, I'm thinking, uh, Chelsea, when um, someone has been discharged less than honorably or they end up separating from the service and they never report what happened to them. You know, what has changed within the VA where there now is an understanding that, you know, while there may not have been a a very um, overt, um, you know, or a report that says that this happened to them, that there's an understanding that there was trauma and that you're able to reconnect them with these benefits. Can you explain that? Sure. So that is the number one anxiety that I hear from my clients when I sit down with them for the first time is their belief that because they did not report the sexual assault that they cannot prove that it happened. And it's heartbreaking because in, I want to say, almost three years of service at CVLC, I have not had a veteran formally report the sexual assault. And I have helped a lot of people. Um, it's, it's, it's devastating to me that they did not feel safe enough to do so. That isn't to say that they didn't try to report it, either to medical professionals or to comrades or, or to anyone who would listen, but no formal report exists at of the assault. And that's a huge amount of anxiety and concern for my clients because in their view, if they don't have a piece of paper that say it it happens, then who is gonna believe them? And what's great about VA in the recharacterization process and also the service connection process is you have the room to prove that this happened in other ways. So the veteran's testimony is actually a pretty priceless piece of evidence that this happened to them. And it's weighed pretty heavily. The other thing that I do in these cases is I go over their their military records, their service treatment records, and I look for any indications that something was going wrong at the time with this soldier. So if you take a soldier who served for four years and for three and a half years, you know, he is an absolute rock star performance evaluations, you know, top of the class type of guy. And then in the last six months of service, suddenly failure to report for duty, starts going to sick call a lot, um, goes AWOL a couple of days. Those instances of misconduct and just things that are a little bit out of the norm for this soldier can be used as evidence for markers of MST. So what I do is I pull together the testimony of the veteran and I use it to put those events into context. And so VA will look at the whole picture and say, okay, this veteran 
is testifying that they went AWOL because a couple of days before that they were sexually assaulted and they could not cope and they needed to leave. And that is used as evidence that the MST occurred. Uh, you can also use mental health records for doctors that vouch for their clients saying, I believe that this incident happened and it is credible to me and they are in treatment for PTSD or depression due to the assault that ex they experienced in the military. That's also priceless information. So VA allows a pretty broad uh, spectrum of evidence to be submitted on the veteran's behalf to prove that MST happened. You do not need to have formally reported the assault in order to get service connected for PTSD due to MST at VA. You know, it's, it's good to hear that there have been changes made to the process and that uh, you know, you're able uh, to help veterans, uh, again, uh, receive benefits that they deserve as veterans. But it, it also sounds particularly onerous on someone who has been dealing with all this trauma. Uh, Chelsea, how do you uh, have this conversation with clients to have faith in the system now when uh, the system that they uh, voluntarily enlisted in uh, failed them then? It's a, it's both the hardest part of my job, but also the most rewarding. I really view representing these people as my highest privilege to be able to do so. And I take very seriously their trust in me. If they do not have trust in me to be able to advocate for them at this process, then the case is dead on arrival. So I spend a lot of time building trust with them that I am in their corner now and that CVLC is in their corner and they don't have to do this alone. And for every letter that VA sends asking for more evidence and more evidence, I am going to be the one to respond to them telling them enough is enough. That being said, it is a very re-traumatizing process. And I think that this speaks to the importance of mental health treatment. The Connecticut Veterans Legal Center is a medical legal partnership. We work with VA healthcare clinicians who often refer clients to us. And so the importance of having a mental health support in this onerous, re-traumatizing, bureaucratic process is so essential. So I work really hard to make sure that my clients are as well supported as possible. And if they don't have access to VA and can't access uh, VA healthcare, I personally go with them to VA to make sure that they can get the healthcare, the mental health treatment that they are entitled to underneath the Honor Our Commitment Act as MST survivors. So we place a really heavy emphasis on the support of mental health. And as for the conversations with my clients, I'm honest with them and I validate their stories and their pain. I understand that there are going to be days where it is too much and they do not want to talk to me <laughs> and that's okay. It is really their story. I'm just the person that is elevating their voice and their story and they are the ones in charge of this process. And if they need to pump the brakes, then we can pump the brakes. If they need to go full steam ahead, then I am here to go full steam ahead. 
But at the end of the day, it is their story and they are the ones telling it. And I am just there to amplify it. And I think at the end of the process, when it's successful, my clients have told me that they feel empowered and that finally somebody actually listened to them and believed them about what happened to them. And there's no better feeling in the world than that. Coming up again, we're going to be talking more about um, some of these reforms uh, within the military justice system. Again, uh, just passed uh, into law recently, so a lot of work that remains uh, that needs to be done. But when you um, think about um, the changes that are being um, hopefully implemented uh, within the military, uh, Chelsea, and the fact that you're working with veterans sometimes again years later uh, from the time that uh, they've been assaulted. I'm wondering if you can talk more about you know, your uh, feelings about you know, a cultural shift that also needs to happen besides a law being codified. Yeah, I think I go back to what I hear from my clients who have survived these traumas, which is they did not report the assault because they did not feel safe to do so. So I think in order for all of this to work, there needs to be a hardline reckoning within the military that this is a crisis. Like the house is on fire <laughs> and that they need to acknowledge it and deal with it with the level that a crisis requires. People are not going to come forward instantaneously now that there is an independent military investigative authority that decides whether or not uh, these things should be investigated. It's nice, it's a step in the right direction, but it doesn't change the problem of the culture that allowed this to become a crisis in the first place. So I think at the end of the day, and, and I'm going to defer to the other uh, far more knowledgeable people on this program to the nuts and bolts of these uh, changes. But I think at the end of the day, we need to remember that these survivors are human beings who have experienced a massive amount of trauma. And I think we as a, as a civilian society have gotten more used to talking about the realities of sexual assault, but it has taken a very long time to do so. And that same type of shift and change needs to happen within the military to ensure that when these devastating events happen to the people that volunteered to serve this country, they know that someone is going to have their back to protect and defend them the way that they have protected and defended us. And that culture shift is going to take time. It's not going to happen overnight. And I completely understand the frustration from survivors at the passage of this new law changing the process and that it is not enough. And it, and I think going back to what I said earlier, we need to remember that these are human beings and changing a couple of rules is not going to solve the overarching problem. We need to create a space where people who have experienced trauma feel safe to entrust that trauma to someone else. And that's going to take a lot of time and effort on the part of the Department of Defense. 
You've been hearing Chelsea Donaldson, an attorney with the Connecticut Veterans Legal Center. Uh, some of her clients are survivors of sexual assault and harassment in the military. Chelsea, thank you for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we're going to talk more about the culture that Chelsea referenced. And we're going to hear from a retired chief prosecutor for the U.S. Air Force about these changes coming to the military justice system. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Survivors of military sexual assault have been calling for reforms to the military justice system for at least a decade. One of the federal lawmakers who led reform efforts is New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. But Gillibrand says the changes to how the military prosecutes sexual assault in this new uh, Federal Defense Authorization Act falls, quote, short of creating a truly independent military justice system. So will this law be enough to change the culture within the military? Joining us now is retired Colonel Don Christensen, who's a retired chief Air Force, Prose- chief Air Force prosecutor, now president of the advocacy group Protect Our Defenders. Don, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good morning. And just for context, uh, Don served as a trial counsel, defense counsel, and a military or military judge for every year of his 23-year career in the United States Air Force. So you get it. You get what's uh, how the military justice system operates. And now you've been pushing for changes as part of Protect Our Defenders. So when you look at uh, the reforms that are in place now in this law, what what really stands out to you? Well, uh, on the positive side, the two things that stand out uh, are, one, that we have empowered independent prosecutors who are going to be working for the service secretary, so like the secretary of the Air Force, instead of anybody wearing a uniform, and they will have the exclusive authority to determine whether uh, offenses such as sexual assault, rape, murder, kidnapping are prosecuted, and if there's any kind of plea deal uh, plea agreement, they will have the exclusive authority to enter into that plea deal. That's a seismic shift from over 200 years of practice in which those decisions would be made by a commander. Uh, the second part that's uh, uh, equally important is it is fundamentally reforming the sentencing process in the military. The military sentencing process is extremely archaic. Uh, it's virtually unchanged since George Washington uh, led the Continental Army. And what we've seen as a result is huge sentencing disparities. Uh, uh, sentences can be extremely harsh or extremely light. Uh, what we see with sex offenses, they, they they are extremely, extremely light compared to civilian sentences. So I always talk about the Brock Turner case where uh, a federal, uh, state judge was recalled because of the sentence he gave Brock Turner. Uh, Brock Turner's sentence in the military would be a pretty good sentence. Uh, so we have a real problem with uh, how sex offenders are sentenced. So now we're going to have a system where all sentences are done by a judge instead of uh, a jury. And they will, for the first time, be using sentencing guidelines. So 
uh, under the current process uh, for a sex assault, a sentence can range from confinement and punitive discharge to literally no punishment. So hopefully these two things are going to be leading the military in the right direction to really tackle sexual assault and other injustices in the criminal justice system. That sentencing piece is really important because uh, with the changes uh, before the military, you know, it's one thing to have more court martials, but the idea that uh, people need to be held accountable, and that's why sentencing reform is such an important part of this, Don. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing more devastating to a survivor than see, uh, for example, a rapist convicted, and then to see them walk out of the courtroom uh, without a single day of confinement. It's like my, you know, my body, my uh, privacy, my sanctity uh, wasn't worth anything. And uh, so this reform will go a long way to making sure that doesn't happen. And, and as insane as it may sound that rapists get away with no confinement, that actually happens uh, not infrequently in the military. Now, we heard from both Peggy and Maureen that while uh, these are historic changes, there are still some big gaps. Uh, and I, I wanted you to clarify that for us in terms of when we talk about removing prosecution of, of sexual assault and other serious crimes from chain of command, there's still the ability of the commander uh, to um, potentially stop a case from going to court-martial and, and how is that still allowed? Can you explain that? Sure. Uh, the military has a process uh, where a, someone who's been accused of a crime can request to be discharged from the military in lieu of going to, uh, to a trial. And uh, that happens quite frequently in sex offenses, uh, somewhere between uh, one-sixth and one-third of sex offenses in a given year uh, that are set to go to trial uh, the command decides instead to let the person just simply leave the military uh, that authority uh, is still within the chain of command so uh, this this process we're trying to get rid of and get away from uh, that commander still has the ability at any time that a uh, an accused asks to be discharged in lieu of going to trial to grant that uh, the prosecutor can't stop it Victim can't stop it. So uh, in an essence, it retains within the chain of command a veto over cases going to trial. That sounds like a big problem uh, when we think about yeah. uh, implementing some of these reforms. So I'm just wondering, you know, what has the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, uh, said about this process? And, you know, as uh, again, uh, you know, you are part of Protect Our Defenders, the president of this advocacy group. When we're thinking about implementation, you know, how are you going to work towards, you know, still highlighting this very, you know, this very problematic uh, uh, gap that remains and, and what commanders uh, can do? before court-martial. Right. I, I'm guessing that uh, this is something that in some way slipped under the radar. Uh, I, I would imagine that the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee and House Armed Services Committee didn't even realize this was a possibility because they don't have really in-depth knowledge of the military justice system. Uh, I don't know if Secretary Austin has really thought about this. So there's a two-year implementation period for this legislation to go into effect. And I'm hoping during that two years, we can bring uh, these uh, defects that are still in the legislation 
to Congress and uh, people like Secretary Austin and, and get them to understand why we need to change this. Uh, I, I think Secretary Austin, uh, when faced with the, you know, the reality that we left within the chain of command, the veto authority over cases, the very thing that we were trying to move away from that he would understand and support that but we, we can't have a process that gives confidence to survivors if that is allowed to exist. So I, I'm uh, optimistic that the next two years we can fix these, uh, but it's not a guarantee that we can. Fix through additional legislation, Don? Right, exactly. This would require additional legislation. Uh, you know, there's a few other uh, oddities that were left within the chain command. So even though the prosecutor is making a decision whether a case uh, is prosecuted or not, the chain of command still has uh, prosecutorial powers that uh, you would see within a civilian prosecutor's office. So, for example, the chain of command uh, still uh, grants immunity requests. Uh, the decision to do that can really impact a prosecution. Uh, they still uh, have the authority, the sole authority, to uh, provide funding to hire expert witnesses, uh, either for the prosecution or the defense. So uh, the, the successful prosecution of the case, it can really hinge on, do you have the expert testimony to support the allegations? And if a commander just simply refuses to give the prosecutor an expert, prosecutor is uh, you know out of luck. There's nothing that we can, done, can be done. Uh, somebody also talked earlier about selection of the court members. The, what we call a jury in the military. Uh, the chain of command is still selecting the court members. Uh, there's been a lot of misunderstanding about that on the Hill. Uh, they've argued that the defense counsel and the prosecutor select court members. They don't. Uh, all they can do is object to the court members that were sent down by the commander, but they do not actually select them. And so that's always been a blight on the military justice system since its inception that the commander picks from people who work for him or her, the jury of the uh, of the accused. Sounds like a lot more issues that still need to be worked out, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how this implementation process moves forward. A retired Colonel Don Christensen, president of Protect Our Defenders, thank you for the context that you've provided us. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. You can listen to Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. We, have, we hope you have a great weekend.